born in the grip of oppression I fought for my liberty I paid with the blood of my people Freedom has never been free Now my door's always open To dreamers and friends But when I'm attacked I protect and defend Because my name is America Welcome, this is Karen Schoen. You're listening to The Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, who is doing an amazing job of getting our children out of those indoctrination clinics masquerading as public schools. Your children going to public school are learning Nothing. You must, if humanly possible, get kids out of the public schools. Public schools are funded by we the people. We have to take away their funding if we want them to listen to us. And the way to do that is to eliminate attendance. So if you can go to goflca.com, that's the Florida Citizens Alliance, look up micro schools under the education uh, bar on the top of the page and get involved. If you don't have children, that doesn't mean you can't mentor a child. You can't get, you have to get involved. This is the most important thing that we can do for America. Uh, Many of us can't do uh, political things. That's okay but everybody can do something and teaching a child to read and teaching them about America and American values is of utmost importance. We have a great show today and we're going to get right into it. I have asked Chris Wright and he has brought with him a wonderful team that writes books has incredible knowledge about what we are facing should we allow this administration to advance more than they are advancing. And what does that mean? That means that we have to pay attention to who we put in office. If we don't pay attention to who we put in office, what you are going to hear is what your life will be. And they're not fooling around. They really mean it. They don't want you in cars. They don't want you doing anything at all that they cannot control. And they are going to use a new pandemic and they're going to hype it up. And you will, I'm beginning to see people wearing masks now, even in this free, quote, free state of Florida, where we shouldn't be seeing masks at all. But people are afraid, and that's what they focus on. Communism is ruled by fear, and we have to get past that. We have to understand that these people mean us harm. They don't love America. They could care less about anything that we have to offer. They're not interested. The only thing they are interested in is control and power. So, Chris, I'm going to ask you if you will get started right away and introduce our wonderful guests. Thank you, Karen, for having us back. Um, I represent the anti-communism action team, and I can say a little bit more about that before, but your listeners have seen me many times, so I'm going to jump right to our guests. The first one, um, since this was a, a 
cooperative book project. The first guest is Eric Seligman. He's been on the show once before, sharing with us wonderful stories about stories of communism, some of the highlights that he and his partner have uh, amassed uh, on their great grassroots website, storiesofcommunism.blogspot.com. Now, Eric was on a large school board in Oregon, and then he went from there to Stories of Communism podcast. What I really want to point out is that this is one of the foremost grassroots anti-communists anti-communists of our time. So uh, that's Eric. Then we're going to bring on Ed Vidal. He's a grassroots liberty activist working election integrity and other issues in Florida. He's executive producer and general counsel of a radio station in Miami. He writes a regular column for the MiamiIndependent.com. He has written that Cuban immigrants recognize many elements of the totalitarian socialist tyranny imposed by the Castro regime regime since 1959 in the woke progressive policies of America's America today. So he's one of a long parade of people coming from communist countries trying to wake up people in this country that we're going down the same path. And it's not a good path because Ed's seen what is at the end of it. So there is a book that was put together. It's called The Revolution of Promises, Reflections of a Cuban Exile. Eric translated the book into English. My nonprofit picked up part of the production costs. Ed wrote a great review in the Miami Independent. And so we're going to hear from uh, all those perspectives. And I want to start by asking Eric, uh, how did this how did this project come about? Yeah, well, um, as you mentioned, you know, I run the the podcast Stories of Communism, and several times for that podcast, I've interviewed a uh, Cuban uh, dissident named Nelson Rodriguez Chartrand, and um, Nelson had just fled Cuba in I think it was 2018, so he was pretty recent. Uh, he has pretty recent experience with Cuba. He told me he was writing a memoir, and so I guess a year or so ago, you know, I asked him how the memoir is going, and he said, "Yeah, it's great. It's all done." And I said, can you send it to me? And he said, yeah, sure, but it's in Spanish. You know, obviously, uh, Spanish isn't my first language. And I I studied in high school, but I'm not quite fluent in it. But I was really curious to read what Nelson had said. So I took it on myself to to slowly translate uh, uh, what he'd sent me. And um, I thought it was a really powerful statement. You know, the title, The Revolution of Promises, sort of emphasizes the fact that Cuba, like most socialist and communist regimes, promises all sorts of things, right? That their system is going to bring prosperity and good health and togetherness and, and all sorts of great uh, uh, social benefits. Um, but of course, none of these promises are actually fulfilled in the end. And, and Nelson illustrates that using his own experiences. So so after I'd you know, uh, translated it, I asked Nelson, so do you have an English publisher yet? And um, it turned out he'd only self-published the uh, Spanish version, so he had no clue how to even get an English <laughs> book published. He uh, asked me to see what I can do, and that's, of course, when I contacted you, Chris, and, and you uh, helped me out with your foundation and uh, put me in touch with the publisher. And uh, that's how it came about. Networking is powerful. Uh, one of the things Eric asked me, was well do you know any any uh independent publishers who engage in self-publishing for a fee it just so happens that another one of our speakers in the anti-communism speakers bureau had just done a book uh, a couple years ago through archway publishing and they did a good job for her 
and she bought a premium package where they did some publicity for her. And so I think that was one of the suggestions I made to Eric and Eric followed up on that one. So this book is published by Archway Publishing. <clears throat> Let's bring in Ed. Ed, you wrote a great review, very detailed, and it goes through the book, parses it in great detail, education, healthcare, so many targets, so little time. Nutrition. Yeah, where do you want to start, Ed? I should back up. Your family is from it fled from Cuban communism. Right. So you I came. I was born in 1957. In 59, the revolution took place, and in 66, my family was able to get get out. My mom and dad, my me and my sister, and my uh, maternal grandparents. So we came to Miami, and my dad got a job in Chicago. So I grew up in Chicago, and that's what I uh, I did. I went to University of Chicago College and Law School. I worked as a lawyer, still a lawyer, but I'm semi-retired. And that was, I would, I'm very lucky and happy to have, that my family got me out of Cuba. And one of the important things about the Cuban revolution, one of the lessons that we have to learn is that your family is a bastion of freedom. It can, you know, despite all your disagreements with your father about what career you should follow, your family can, can save you. And that's why the communists in America and in Cuba are going after the family. Uh, that's a, a clear problem. And you see it today with this uh, uh, transgender ideology and just trying to take the children away from their parents. It happens in all these places. It's the same thing. But before I get into the substance, I want to say congratulations, Eric, because you did a really good job of translating for somebody who doesn't who's not fluent in Spanish. And I think you said you use Google Translate. Yeah, well, of course, I didn't just push everything through Google Translate, right? That results in nonsense, but I, I used it as a good aid. So, yeah. you know, so basically, I took it paragraph by paragraph, used Google Translate to get sort of a very rough starting version. And then kind of by looking back at the original Spanish and, you know, asking Nelson questions when I got really confused, I was able to, to get something that sounded okay. I think that the, this is an extraordinary, it's a small book. It's like 70, 80 pages, but it's really important. And it should be read not only by American patriots to, for ammunition, for your arguments, our arguments with the left, but also by people who think that the Cuban revolution is somehow a model for America. They're nuts. They're, you know, there's just no excuse. And I know this, my daughter's mother-in-law is uh, somewhat like that. And I've had some real run-ins with her. And I, I'm thinking of sending this to her. They live in Vermont. And at the end of the of the book review, I said, this, this book should be uh, airdropped into Vermont and other blue precincts. Because people need to, to look at this. And, you know, like you look at a guy like Bernie Sanders. What's, what's he thinking? In 1988, he went to the Soviet Union for his honeymoon? I mean, even the Soviets didn't think that the Soviet Union was worth it. Uh, you know, the next year, Boris, you know, Boris Yeltsin came to Houston and he saw a Randall supermarket and he realized the Soviet Union couldn't keep up with that. And uh, when the Berlin Wall was torn down by the Berliners, they didn't fire a shot. They knew they, they were on the wrong side, wrong side of history. I, you know, I don't understand all these Americans that want to... Um, uh, import these communist policies. Um, but I hope this book uh, wakes them up. 
This, none of this should be a surprise because in the Communist Manifesto, Marx and Engels told us what the game was. Abolish the family, abolish private property. I think he said at one point, a uh, simple definition of communism means there's no private property. And that's where Karen wanted to start. So I'm going to ask you both. Uh, let's start with Ed and talk about uh, what the... Uh, Castro Revolution did with respect to private property. What they did was abolish private property. You might own your toothbrush, but you don't own your business. Castro's a socialist. He's an international socialist. Mussolini said it. He's a national socialist. He said in Italian, everything inside the state, nothing outside the state, nothing against the state. Castro said the same thing in Spanish. He means there is no private sector in a totalitarian socialist society. All the property, all the assets, all the newspapers, all the means of production are owned by the state. And of course, the state is owned by the party and the party leadership. So you have the greatest inequality. You know, you look at Fidel Castro's family, very wealthy, Hugo Chavez's family, very wealthy, uh, Nicolas Maduro, another Venezuelan, very wealthy. So the, the, the top leadership does very well, but the rest of the country is, you know, doesn't own anything. And that's what the World Economic Forum wants. You, you will own nothing and be happy. The answer in Cuba and other communist countries is we're not happy. We own nothing and we are not happy. So that's the problem. Private property is an essential component of liberty. It was recognition of that went back to John Locke in the 1680s, he wrote that uh, the essential rights are life, liberty, and property. And in the Declaration of Independence, Thomas Jefferson made it life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, whatever that you want. But it's essential to have private property. Well, Ed, let me ask you, let's compare this to the Venezuelan case. In Venezuela, when uh, Hugo Chavez took over, the socialistas uh, uh, what do they call themselves? The socialism of the 21st century. Anyway, I forget their precise name, but uh, they nationalized 58 key industries and right. all the big companies there. And as far as I can tell, they left things like private taxis, little little bodegas, uh, stuff like that uh, to operate according to private sector principles. So when you say that the Castro regime took private property, how far did it go in the beginning? Well, I'll give you an example from my own family. You know, obviously, the socialists first confiscate the commanding heights of the economy, as they call it. In 1965 or 64, they confiscated my dad's pharmacy which was a small town in the middle of Cuba. It was a very prosperous town because it was surrounded by sugar mills. It was a pharmacy that had been founded by my grandfather. So it was a family business, mom and pop, but it was a prominent uh, pharmacy. In the third world, there aren't as many hospitals. There was no hospital in the town where I grew up. And so it was a, a, an important place for first aid and others. You, don't, you, know, you, don't, you didn't go to the pharmacy to buy shampoo, and uh, chapstick, you went for, for drugs, for pharmaceutical products, and, and for first aid. So yeah, I would say from personal family experience, it went down to confiscating mom-and-pop pharmacies in small towns in central Cuba. They were not just confiscating the 
commanding heights of the economy in Havana. Uh, and uh, I'm not sure what happened in Venezuela, but I can tell you in Cuba, uh, they, they took everything. There's no private sector. Even they allowed a few restaurants because the tourists needed to have a place to eat. And uh, so there are a few restaurants allowed, but that's really it. Okay. And in the last couple of years, they've made a few concessions, uh, especially mm -hmm. along the restaurant front and things like that. But uh, wow, I had no idea that they went further than the Venezuelans and were confiscating family-owned pharmacies in small towns all yeah. over the island. That's just amazing. Let's bring in Eric. Uh, Eric, what do you, um, after reading and translating this book, what can you uh, share with us about the socialist penchant for getting rid of private property? Yeah, well, I think, you know, one, one sort of aspect of this whole private property thing that sometimes gets lost is, you know, when you say the words private property, people envision, you know, oh, well, someone has a mansion and the government confiscates it. Well, good for those rich people. They deserved it. But the truth is private property is largely about the little things, right? And free exchange of property is responsible for a huge amount of wealth, you know, of, of what you actually have day to day in a country. So, um, you know, like, for example, if, you know, if there's less and less food in the markets, then the prices will go up, you know, in a free economy, and that'll incentivize people who are capable of producing food to produce more of it, right? And that's sort of part of the whole system that private property encompasses. One of the biggest things I saw in Nelson's memoir that really struck me was sort of the dire poverty in which Cubans live day to day, right? And I think that's largely a consequence of, you know, eliminating this whole concept of private property, right? And eliminating the basic sort of mechanisms of economics that help uh, that help address scarcity, you know, when, when something is hard to find and give people incentives to produce more of it. So Nelson talked about how, you know, every day was a struggle for food, right? Because in Cuba, you know, yes, the government gives you some official food allowance, but that's really only enough to get you through about a third of the month, right? And food is just so scarce in general. Um, you have to pretty much find a way to earn money on the black market in order to buy extra food at exorbitant prices, um, just to keep your family from starving, right? And again, you know, because there is no private property, the normal market mechanisms that would incentivize people to produce food effectively just aren't there. Wow. And uh, conveniently for the socialists, uh, this allows them to turn food into a weapon. Uh, that We had a um, guy in our speakers bureau, he's now passed on, unfortunately, but he was in correspondence with a woman somewhere in Cuba and she would write to him all the time about how they didn't have enough food and it was deliberate. The government was perpetrating this policy. And the way they put it was, if you are, you can't think about revolution if you're all you can think about is where your next meal is coming from. So this all of this is quite insidious. Let's bring in Karen since she wanted to start with property rights. Uh, Karen, any comments or questions on this point? Oh, I, I absolutely agree 100%. And this is the modus operandi of the communist takeover of a country. Uh, my family and my husband's family came from Hungary. And his family owned a large um, lumberyard in, in town. And when the communists came in, not only did they take over the lumberyard, but they lined up the young men and the men in the town and shot them. Uh, they were felt that uh, they would be in opposition, which, of course, they were. Uh, 
So they don't care about private property per se. And what we don't know or realize is that private property is not limited to land. Private property is anything you own, including your children, as Ed said. Whatever it is, your person, your business, it does not matter because they feel that ownership of something creates wealth and wealth is not sustainable. Well, it's not sustainable for them to think that, but it certainly is sustainable for us. And this is a large part of the problem as they are teaching our children that capitalism is based on greed. And therefore, when somebody has something, it means that somebody else doesn't. So rather than, as we always said, raising the bar so that everyone has a thorough education, can read, write, do math, and then can have a skill set that will enable them to have a a business or an occupation or whatever it is that they want to be able to do to pursue happiness, they will, they are unable to do that because the government must control it. And the lie that they spread is that this is a utopian idea so that everybody will be equal. What they don't do is finish the sentence, which is everybody will be equally poor, as they, as Ed said, become equally rich. So this is what we are facing, and they're not fooling. They mean to take away. They mean to push us off our land, off our businesses, out of our cars, out of anything that might represent any kind of ownership of anything, and put us all in what they call 15-minute cities, which is a whole other conversation. George Washington said very wisely that freedom and property rights are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. He was absolutely right, because you can't be a free society if you can't own anything. You are always beholden to the ruling class, and whatever they give you, they can take away. So, Chris, we're going to be at the end of this segment. So if you want to wrap up, um, we will then come back for segment number two. Okay, I'll just wrap up by saying we had another person in our speakers bureau from Czechoslovakia, and uh, he touched on an aspect of this that I don't think gets nearly enough attention in discussions of communism. And he said, if you're not stealing from the state, you're robbing your own family. So what this system does, it forces people to become horrible, wretched, immoral people. Uh, maybe not all of them, but uh, it certainly has that tendency. And that was this guy's uh, whole major point that um, it, the system is set up to produce bad people. And with that, I'll turn it back to you, Karen. Okay, uh, folks, don't go away. We will be right back. This is Karen Schoen. You are listening to the Prism of America's Education, and education is probably the most important intellectual property that you can own. That's why it's so important that our children read, write, and can do math. Um, if I think it was, yes, it was Frederick Douglass who said that a child or a person who cannot read is always a slave. 
Think about that. How many times have you had to sign a document? If you couldn't read that document, how would you know what you were signing? How would you know what you were giving away? So reading, writing, and math is of utmost importance, which is why it's not being taught. Please go to my favorite sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance, goflca.org, click on the education tab and look at the micro school program. It is the micro school program. And what is a micro school? Micro school is a group of parents and teachers. You don't have to be a, a teacher with a degree to have to be a teacher. You're giving information. You're teaching someone. That's what you're doing. This is a group of individuals who get together maybe one or two days a week and will put kids in a group and teach. And they teach American values. They teach Christian our Christian and Judeo values, so that our children know the value of being a free person. I asked one of the teachers one time when she was uh, talking about uh, what was going on in school and how they're not teaching phonics. And I said, okay, you you don't teach phonics, you teach uh, phonemic awareness, which is the recognition of the patterns of the letters, which is almost impossible. And that's how the kids recognize the words. They don't sound them out. They have to recognize the words. So I asked her, I said, what happens if freedom or America or constitution isn't there, isn't one of the words? Will they learn it? And she just looked at me. I guess they won't learn it. So we have to make sure we have to be the bastions of courage. And in this trying time, we have to make sure that we are. So don't go away, folks, and we will be right back. World-class care from doctors you can trust, all from the comfort of your home. That is One Wellness. Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company designed the One Wellness membership to provide free monthly supplements and unlimited telemedicine access with doctors that share your values. Go to OutloudCare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first month of One Wellness. Cofix RX Nasal Solution has completed the circle and is now offering throat spray with povidone iodine. That completes the protocol doctors like Peter McCullough recommend. If staying healthy is important, you'll want to make sure to add throat spray to your next order of Cofix RX. For a limited time and exclusive for America Out Loud listeners only, you can save 25% off your entire order. Let's double down against colds, flus, strep, RSV, HRV, COVID, and more. Click the banner or go to America Out Loud shop to get 25% off your entire order. Use coupon code OUTLOUD25. That's coupon code OUTLOUD25. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. AmericaOutloud.news is beaten to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, troubled, misled, joyful, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. America Out Loud Talk Radio. 
it's a fight for the soul of humanity. Welcome back, everyone. This is Karen Schoen. You're listening to the Prism of America's Education brought to you on the America Out Loud talk radio network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. I want to get right into the meat of our discussion, but before I do that, I do have two small announcements to make, so get out your pens and paper and jot this down. If you live in the state of Florida, write down 101.5604. That is Florida Statute 101.5604. That mandates that in Florida we must use machines to count our votes. Now, machines should be used to check our votes, not count our votes. And this is a going to be a big issue, as we know that there is going to be so much cheating going on. So what we would like is that call your legislators, especially now because they're having the legislative delegation. They will be coming around to your area, making nicey-nice and hoping you'll vote for them and tell them you want the word must turned into the word may. So that gives us the option to use paper ballots when we feel there is a problem of which we know there will be a problem. The next item is for your federal legislators. Please call them, email them, call their offices in D.C. They will be there starting tomorrow and tell them no border, no funding, no continuing resolution. We have to get that border closed today. Over 4,000 people came into America who were illegal. And this is going to continue and continue and continue until we put a stop to it. So, uh, Chris, I'm going to turn this over to you. I would like to see, I'm sure that education was one of the topics that was in that book. What do you think? Well, we'll see if our speakers want to take it on. Uh, My my thought about it is uh, last hour's discussion made me remember that when I was growing up, all we heard about was a liberal arts education. And first it was that colleges were teaching this and it was really great. And then it was fell out of favor because you couldn't get any jobs and blah, blah, blah. It took me decades to figure out what they were talking about when they were talking about a liberal arts education. They were talking about learning how to live in freedom. That's what liberal arts education means. So with that as a jumping off point, let's go back to Eric and Ed. Uh, Let's take up uh, the subject of education. Who would like to go first? Yeah, well, maybe I can, uh, you know, just start by mentioning, you know, something uh, outside the book, of course. But, uh, you know, you you mentioned before that I was on uh, one of uh, Oregon's largest school boards. Or, you know, the board wasn't large, but the district was large um, before I started my, uh, you know, Stories of Communism podcast. And my experience on that school board was one of the things that really motivated me to want to start speaking out on this issue, just because I examined the the teacher training materials the district had, you know, to teach all the teachers about equity. And when I looked at that stuff, I was pretty shocked at, at the open Marxism there. Like, for example, they actually had a statement that, you know, uh, individual rights 
are an emphasis of white culture because white people believe in selfishness and absolute freedom. But brown people are more caring about the community. Therefore, socialism is much more appropriate for people of color. You know, th things like that. Um, and um, I think, you know, this this book is one of, you know, the great ways to refute that. You know, I think, you know, Cuba, by however you define people of color, it's, you know, mostly people in that category. And socialism has not helped them at all. Okay. Let's go to Ed and see if he can uh, pick up the thread. Go ahead, Ed. In 1961, I was four years old. And I remember the national literacy campaigns that were launched. Uh, my parents tried to send me to the local uh, Catholic convent, but the, all the religious people were kicked out. So at four, I was sent home, and my mother, who uh, had the time, uh, taught me to read in Spanish when I was four. And we had nothing to do with the public schools. When I went to the public schools the next year, I already knew how to read, so they put me in first grade. So the point is that all this, alpha, they call it alphabetization, national literacy. They're teaching you to read their propaganda and their indoctrination. They're not teaching you to have a liberal education. They want, they're like slave owners who want slaves who can do things. You know, if the slave can, is a good uh, uh, at making horseshoes or, or at something, you know, some practical skill, it's more valuable for the owner. So that's what they want. The owner wants their people to uh, know how to do things so they, they become more valuable, but they use education as a means of indoctrination and propaganda. But there's a second part to the education, and this is something that I had forgotten, but Nelson brought it to light, which is they started in the 60s, these schools in the countryside. They're patterned on the Maoist you know, go to the countryside, uh, bourgeois people should go to the countryside and learn how to farm and so on. The reason they were used in Cuba was to take children away from their families. They were sent to the country uh, and to, to have schools in the country. No reason for it except to get them away from their families. These schools in the country became big sources of just all kinds of corruption and immorality and I've heard about that from other people. So the purpose of education in Cuba is twofold. Number one, it's to indoctrinate you with propaganda. Number two, to break you away from your family. Thank you, Ed. Um, there's a, let's get reaction or uh, questions or comments from Karen first. And I'm remembering a horrible story I heard about Cuban education. Go ahead, Karen. Oh, I couldn't agree more because when I was teaching, I began to see in the uh, 80s and 90s the turn from America and an American education into this collective education whereby you now had to be part of a group. Um, 
we used to do things individually. The one that got the highest score got an A, got a prize, things like that. Well, that we were turned away from that. Everybody was getting a trophy just for participating. And all of a sudden, I began to see as a teacher, instead of giving a 95 on a test, it was an A or a B or a C. The numbers were removed. So that was the first step. Then instead of a C, a D, and an F being failing, a D was passing. And what was happening was schools were being graded on a curve. So uh, if you look at the NAEP, which is the nation's report card, and the grades come out, you'll see in Florida that the high score is 500. The majority of the schools and the vast majority of the schools are below 250. That's below half. And yet these schools are A schools. So we have lowered the bar so low that this, I be, this is a, a, an affirmative action deal. And now I believe we are living the results of that failed education as we look at this failed administration that can't do anything other than uh, rule by iron fist and uh, institute a communist ideology. And it makes it easy because there's no individualism. Uh, we are living the results of that. I uh, think it goes deeper than just we have these policies and we're going to impose these policies. I'm going to get psychological here for a moment. In sector after sector, uh, education, healthcare, it doesn't matter what it is now. People are no longer hiring for the mission. They are hiring for the checking the diversity box. And uh, I just had lunch with a woman who works for a one of those 17 agencies that cannot be named. Uh, and she said she's watching her HR department make diversity hires and it's no longer about the mission. Okay, well, what kind of agency are we going to have after a, a while? So these people are so crazy that they believe their ideology so completely that they're willing to sacrifice every other value to it, which I just think is nuts. And it's a world that's gone completely out of kilter. And so uh, I think it goes back to their basic setup, which is the Gnostic fantasy. Talked about this with Ed before. They believe they possess secret knowledge that will produce a, a perfect world and the end of all human suffering. Well, when you start with that as your basic uh, setup, then you are completely allergic to reality and uh, completely vulnerable to being red-pilled, which we say in our circles. So uh, I think that's what's uh, going on psychologically speaking. They just, they can't handle re reality. It's all a fantasy for them. And that's all that matters. Okay, so that's education. Uh, I wanna go back to uh, Eric and Ed. There were other topics raised by the book, other topics covered in the book review. Um, so who would like to pick up one of the other domains? Well, one of the other domains is healthcare, and I uh, I have listened to a dopey uh, Vermonter tell me that Cuba has a very good healthcare system, and the WHO has rated them as excellent. But as 
the book uh, points out, you can't call them excellent when they don't have enough medicines. The facilities are falling apart. They're not clean. They're not safe. Uh, you have no recourse against the state healthcare monopoly if there's some malpractice committed. So, you know, the, the, the author recounts several situations where people just died from mistreatment in the medical system. He even said that there's not enough ambulances. Sometimes uh, sick people have to be taken to the hospital in, in horse carts. So this idea that uh, Cuban healthcare is good is ridiculous. And it's only people in Vermont and other places like that that believe it. Nobody here in Doral, Florida, thinks that Cuba has a good healthcare system. But it's one of these lies that keeps being repeated by fascists or by by uh, uh, useful idiots is really the right word for them. And so we need to fight that. The, the author did point out that Cuba does have a first-rate healthcare system. It's available for the leadership, their families, and foreigners willing to pay for it. But for ordinary Cubans, you're out of luck. Eric? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, one of the things that struck me in the book uh, was Nelson talked about how, you know, like, like Ed just mentioned, um, if you went to the hospital, chances are it was only partially constructed. There might not be windows installed. And um, as far as, you know, the I know those of us who've been in American hospitals might not have been thrilled with the cafeteria food. But there, the, the ability to provide food was so poor that they had to open up the hospital hallways to street vendors to come in and hawk food to the patients. So if they had enough money, they could buy something decent to eat. Wow. It's just kind of bizarre to me. But uh... Well, I'll tell you what's bizarre to me. Uh, I mentioned uh, the Cuban we had in our speakers bureau who has since uh, passed on. He created a lot of videos. He did one for me called promises promises how uh, the communists betrayed the cuban people which is lines up very nicely with uh nelson's title for his book but in there he got i don't know how i got this but it's undercover video from inside cuba from inside one of the health facilities available to the ordinary people not the leadership not the foreigners who pay for it not the military elite the ordinary people and with uh rust and broken pipes and dirty toilets and on and on and on. This is enough to make you throw up. So it's on the website, spiderinthefly.com uh, on the videos page. There are hyphens between the words spider hyphen and hyphen, etc. spiderinthefly.com. So that's what I wanted to say about healthcare. Before we go on, let's bring in Karen. Do you have any thoughts on Cuban healthcare? Yeah. Well, it sounds like we're copying Cuban healthcare and bringing it to America because these people have no regard for human life. They feel that the earth is overpopulated. So if the people die, who cares? Obamacare really stripped many doctors, most doctors, from actually providing care. Instead of providing care now, you go to the doctor and they give you a code number and that's how they get paid. And I noticed that one of my doctors that I had gone to and stopped since stopped going to was come in every month 
come in every month, but I'm not sick. Well, come in every month. Well, why did he want me to come in every month? Because he got a code and that code enabled him to get paid from the insurance company. So I believe the insurance companies are running the show and our medical care is suffering extremely. And this is now what we have to look forward to. Well, my sisters have had, uh, they've been consumers of healthcare services recently, and they see a big decline in their town as to what's on offer. Um, I think the basic problem is we now have a system that's 60% government, 40% private, and headed in the wrong direction, more government control. And so uh, this is this is our future unless we change course. Okay, let's go ahead and... Um, uh, Ed, did you get to pick a subject that you wanted to talk about? Well, one subject that I would like to discuss, and it's something I run into every now and then, is visiting Cuba. And it, he says, don't because all you do is you benefit the elites. You know, I know that 90% of all the money spent on tourism in Cuba goes to the government. And 10% goes to the people. So he says... Don't visit Cuba because uh, you're just subsidizing the regime. Uh, I say I agree with what he's saying, but it, it, people need to go there. They need to see what's going on. I, I know people who have gone there and come back and said, oh, they're happy. And, you know, that's just ridiculous. Uh, so that that's a, a real issue here. And we run into that in Miami. I had this uh, very wealthy woman from Scarsdale, New York was down here in Miami. She's going the next day to Cuba to learn Spanish. I said, you can learn Spanish here on Calle Ocho on 8th Street. You don't need to go to Cuba. But for some reason, these Amer wealthy Americans think they need to go to Cuba and see. But what I said in my review was, you're, you're it's like you're going to a zoo, a prison island, and you have your U.S. passport. You know you can get out. But all the prisoners cannot. And you're just making fun of them. You're You're, you're, really preying on their misery. Uh, and then the other factor that's a big issue here sometimes in Miami is when is when are things going to change? Uh, the uh, in, on, in July of 2021, there was a big protest. Uh, there was a rap song that's very powerful, uh, Patria y Vida. I, I concluded a, a link to that in my book review about regime change in Cuba. And what I said was, that Cuba is like the island of Melos in the Peloponnesian War. Melos was a small island. They were allied with Sparta by ethnic and cultural traditions, but you know, um, Athens had the big navy, and so they controlled the, the seas, and the Athenians brought a big uh, force to uh, the island of Melos. And the leaders of Melos said, well, this isn't fair. You know, we're, we haven't done anything to you, Spar uh, Athens, and it's not fair that you should come here and try to conquer us. And the Athenians said, it doesn't matter. Power is uh, ruled today. And uh, you either submit to us or we're going to uh, destroy your, your island. And that the, the Melians refused. They called out for our Sparta to come help them. Sparta didn't have a navy. And uh, so the, the whole Melian population was destroyed, killed, or enslaved. The moral of the story is Cuba is a small island in a sea of world empires. It started with the U.S. 
1823, the U.S. government wisely, Monroe, uh, President Monroe and uh, John Quincy Adams, the Secretary of State, and they announced a policy, the Monroe Doctrine, that the U.S. would have a policy of keeping European and Asian powers away from the Americas. That policy was violated by the Kennedy brothers in 1961 and 62 when they allowed Russia, a Eurasian power, to have a key, uh, a, a, a place in the Western Hemisphere. And that has paid uh, very terrible dividends for the U.S. And today we have China that's also looking to uh, interfere in the Western Hemisphere. We have uh, Iran that's very busy in Venezuela, Bolivia, Argentina. We have all these Eurasian powers interfering in the Americas, and that is against the interest of the United States. So Cuba will not be freed, and this regime will not change until America decides that they want to be, we want to be great again, and we exercise our sovereignty, our supremacy over the Western Hemisphere. And that will include driving out China, which now has a base in Cuba, as well as Russia and even Iran. So Cuba will not be free until America uh, wakes up and, and counterattacks. Eric, did you want to weigh in? Well, I mean, that's an interesting point about America needing to wake up and counterattack. But I'm afraid that, you know, the, the we're fighting the battle on a more uh, on a closer front right now, because really what the uh, left wing in the United States has been doing for the past half century is teaching Americans that we don't even deserve to control America. Right. We're fundamentally evil We're fundamentally racist and classist. And all the problems of the world are the fault of American civilization, right? And until we counter against that in our education system, there's no way we can convince people that our nation has the right to tell anyone else what to do. Okay, Karen, do you want to comment? I agree 100%, but I do see some good things happening, and hopefully they will continue. Uh, there seems to be a few new leaders. Um that are coming up in the Americas. Uh, the latest one is a gentleman in Argentina, and he is so far ahead in his polls. Now, if he they have an election like we do, it won't make any difference. But I do see the people waking up, and I believe that it has to come from the people. The leaders who created this are not going to change anything. It has to come from us. And sadly, in America, we're not suffering enough. And change only happens when people really suffer. So maybe a horrible thing to say, maybe the border being open and the illegals coming in like this will create enough suffering. Um, but until that happens and Americans stand up and it can't just be an isolated incident like what's going on in New Mexico when the governor says she is canceling the Second Amendment in Albuquerque, but the sheriff and the mayor said, no, you're not. We're not going to adhere to what you're saying because it's against the Second Amendment. We need more leaders like that. Nothing is going to happen until we vet them. So I look forward to maybe a new awakening and maybe the Americas will wake up. 
Well, the problem with that is it doesn't hurt bad enough yet, but by the time it does hurt bad enough, it's going to be too late. Um, I wanted to do a little side trip here. Uh, the American communists on college campuses are making nicey-nice with the uh, regime, communist regime in, in Cuba. So here's a course out of St. Catherine's University in St. Paul, Minnesota. This course offers students the opportunity to increase their capacity for critical inquiry. I'm going to come back to that term, critical inquiry, and deepen their understanding of the cultural nature of effective, ethical, and enduring leadership. And this is a course that's being taught. It's like a three-week session in Havana. So they're trying to get people to go to Cuba and take this three weeks course. Uh, and they're going to point out how uh, those students have learned a social, political and economic construct that they have been taught. Uh, 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 it constitutes the American way of life. And uh, it's uh, open to criticism in so many ways. This brings us back to the term critical inquiry. Whenever you hear the left talk about critical, they don't mean using your noodle, figuring things out, developing analytical frameworks and capabilities. What they mean is criticize absolutely everything until, until you tear it all down and there's nothing left. That's critical inquiry. If you go back and look at the origins of it in the early uh, 30s, 1930s, um, that's definitely what we're talking about. Now, uh, I want to do two things. First is, Eric, did you get to pick a subject that you wanted to talk uh, about um, out of the book? Oh, well, I think um, we haven't really touched on freedom of the press yet. And I think that's an interesting one, especially given Nelson's uh, activism. Yeah, so I think um, I actually dug up a... a a good uh, quote here that um, Nelson, uh, I think he says it's from the Cuban uh, Constitution, um, and it's the, the Cuban definition of freedom of the press, right? And here it goes. Freedom of the press is recognized. This right is exercised according to the needs of society. The fundamental means of social communication and any of its manifestations and supports are the socialist property of all the people or of the political, social, and mass organizations and cannot be categorized as another type of property. That's terrific. So it's it's great. You know, it starts out, you know, it seems to be a definite statement in favor of freedom of the press. But then as you read on, it's like, okay, it's freedom of the press as long as the press says stuff that supports socialism. And there of course, go. if you That's say true. stuff that doesn't support socialism, you know, as, as Nelson was doing when he was touring the country talking about free market economics, uh, then um, you find out that you don't really have that freedom. Right? And of course, Nelson ended up being arrested, beat up, spending time in jail and all that, um, trying to exercise some of this uh, freedom of speech that he was promised. That's a nice segue to Karen's final topic. She wanted to talk about Missouri versus Biden and the federal circuit court ruling ruling that the government agencies actually uh, are not supposed to tell social media companies uh, what to present and not present. That's uh, not that's not good under the First Amendment. And I will tell you, I followed that case from the beginning, plus the Twitter files, which is on very much the same subject. Um, and what I uh, what impresses me is that this is a wide-ranging censorship exercise, just like the state attorneys general said who brought the case, because, get this, 70, 70 federal agencies were involved in this censorship enterprise, which just burns my court. Things have gone upside down. It's not supposed to happen this way. So we're running out of time. Let's do a quick round of responses to that. Who'd like to go first? 
Well, I would like to say that everybody should look up the Smith-Mund, M-U-N-D-T Act, signed by Obama, which was modernized and sponsored by a Republican, which allowed the government to get involved with the media and high-tech companies or any companies so that they would not be uh, talking about anything that they didn't like. And this act was then put in place and uh, it needs to be repealed. Okay, let's go next to Ed, censorship and Cuban communism. I I agree with uh, Karen, but one thing that is a constant is the administrative state. It's not in the Constitution. Uh, it's not part of. The, it's not the executive branch itself. We have 2.2 million federal government employees, and they are like a separate branch of government. They have their own interests. They are all unionized government bureaucrats. By their ideology, they favor the progressive model of expert government, government by experts with limited accountability, if any, to the people. And so I think we need to address that administrative state, which is set in stone in many respects. We need to defund it. We need to shut down the government. We need to terminate two million of those people. Send them home. Tell them to go get another job. It has been a pleasure having you, gentlemen. I certainly appreciate it. And hopefully we will come back again and continue this important conversation. You have been listening to Karen Chung. This is the Prism of America's Education, brought to you on the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network with my wonderful sponsor, the Florida Citizens Alliance. Have a wonderful week, and I will see you again next week. Hey!